Episode 65, Empowering the Underserved, Technology's Impact on Access to Justice, my conversation with Bridget Mary McCormick. Bridget is president and CEO of the American Arbitration Association, International Center for Dispute Resolution. She's also a strategic advisor to the Future of the Profession Initiative at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. Until the end of 2022, Bridget was Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, a position her peers selected her for in January 2019 after she served for six years as a justice. While on the court, she championed innovation and the use of technology to improve access to justice. Enjoy. Have you been enjoying the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Bridget, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, what is your current tech setup? Ah. Uh, well, I'm on the road right now. I'm in DC today. So I oh. literally, yeah, I'm literally only on my laptop for this conversation. Fair enough. It's better at home and in my office. At home in my office, I have multiple screens. I use a Yeti mic and I have better speakers, but we're going to muddle through today, aren't we? I think this is just working fantastic. By the way, you sound great. And if I may ask what, well, let's start with what you have in front of you right now. What is your current laptop? Oh, it's a Lenovo ThinkPad. So you're a Windows person. I am. I mean, I don't really have a choice. Well, every employer I've ever worked for has required me to be a Windows person. So fair enough. Now, if you had worked with me, we're Mac, but well, so you maybe you should have hired me, you know, I don't, <laughs> I know. Know. I don't remember getting an offer from you. So you I'm know. sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell me what about what you have at home? I carry my laptop back and forth between home and I just dock it at home in my large screens. And I also have a Getty mic and better speakers. So I like to have a lot of screens and a better mic, especially for conversations like this. So I'm glad it sounds okay. So it worries me. Well, let me ask you, what kind of screens do you have at home? How many do you have? Oh, at home, I have two. They are enormous. Yeah, good question about exactly what size. I don't know. I probably should have done my homework and written all that down before I traveled. But there are two big, enormous screens. And then obviously, I can use my laptop screen for a third when I occasionally need that. And sometimes I do. Especially sometimes when I'm having a conversation, it's nice to have the video screen in the middle. And if I need, you know, yes. information on the sides, I like to have those screens on the sides. So, yeah. Well, if I may ask, when you were on the bench, did you have just one computer screen or did you have maybe one or two others? On the bench, when I was in oral arguments, I just mm -hmm. carried my laptop up to the bench. So just one screen. Okay. Sometimes I would also take my iPad if I knew I wanted to be looking at more than one thing. So I might be mm -hmm. looking at the briefs and also to, at the same time, you know, yeah, obviously you could have multiple tabs. But in my office at the court, I had two large screens and would also dock my laptop to give myself a third. I've been using three screens for a long time. So how do you like that iPad Windows life? How do I like having to use both? It's sure, or, or compare and contrast, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, you said yeah, it's yeah. not ideal. I think it's not ideal because there's just some functions that don't automate across the two systems. Maybe they'll get better and better. I don't know. But I've figured out how to MacGyver my way around it because it's the world we live in. And so I manage. 
what do you primarily use your iPad for? That is a great question. I use my iPad for just about everything except editing I, or, or even writing. I don't do any of any serious writing or editing on mm. my iPad. I don't like the functionality of track changes on iPad. So that might just be a function of my age, having gotten used to writing on a bigger keyboard or writing in a Windows environment, but I don't use it for drafting or editing. Everything else I use it for. I love it for social consumption. It's nice to have, just to be able to check emails every now and then. The keyboard, I have several. They're just not quite the same as a full-size keyboard. I agree. Yeah. And I have a feeling you and I are very fairly close in age. And it's sort of, it's weird if I may ask, do you handwrite out drafts or you just type it straight in? I don't handwrite a thing. I don't even, I don't remember how to use a pen and paper. I'm just kidding. I do. I have a book that I keep a lot of handwritten notes, which are things as I'm thinking of them and I want to not forget. And I have a whole system in my little book. Okay. But anything that I'm really composing or drafting for others or even for myself, I'm keep keeping a memo about something I'm working on. I do that all with fingers and keys at this point. Best class I took was in high school was typing. Do you know I never took typing? I mean, I type like I type incredibly fast for somebody who never learned how to type. It was a class that I've used over and over again ever since I graduated high school. And quite frankly, when it came to doing papers, it was a lot easier in high school to do papers on a typewriter or even on the Mac Plus. And at the time I took the bar, some bars, I think they still haven't let like the programs like the examinator be used to take the bar. You still had to either do it by handwriting. And DC was one of the very few bars at the time that allowed for you to take it on a typewriter. So I took it huh. on a typewriter, which saved my butt because I can't write that fast and my penmanship sucks. And But that's another story. So we have, so what kind of iPad do you have? I have the, I'm going to sound not like a tech savvy person, the big one and the most recent version. So it's, oh, I'm it's guessing like an two iPad months Pro. Old. Oh, wow. It's an iPad Pro, yes. M2 chip, right? Yeah. And yeah. I'm sure that thing cooks, doesn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. It's basically like having an extra computer. So, yeah. It, they are amazing. I have the M1 chip in mind. So it's, I mean, and quite frankly, there's a performance bump between what you have to what I have, but it's not so much that justifies me or anyone for that matter, getting the M2. But of course, if you've got I one see. of the older chips, definitely get what you have, especially since that's, yeah. the, that's the way things are going. And th that being said though, smartphone? Yeah, I have an iPhone. My iPhone is actually, I think it's only a 12. Okay. And it works fine. So I'm, I'm sort of a, I don't, I use my phone for listening to things. I listen to books okay. and podcasts a lot when I'm cool. walking. I occasionally have to talk on the phone. That's something that people still do. Sometimes I call my 20-something kids just to annoy them because they think calling is rude. So I like to have Oh, I didn't that. know that. Yeah, it's rude. It's rude to call oh, people. I didn't um, know that. I, I, it's what I learned I'm something to today. <laughs> and, and I like to be able to quickly, I use it for anytime I have to check in for a flight or a train or travel apps and sometimes email, but I don't really like to compose email on my phone. Do you have a, a smartwatch by chance? I do. Ah, and which one is it? Apple Watch. It's the, the Apple. Okay. How do you like it? I like it a lot. I mean, again, I probably maybe don't use all of the functions that I could use mm -hmm. that I could get out of it. But for the things that I do keep track of on it, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I have the Ultra, which is. Oh, how do you like that? I think, I forget what, free me, I forgot what version Apple watches. If you have the newest version and I have just the slightly upgraded version, but the Ultra. Mine, I don't, do not think it's the but the Ultra has a bigger screen. It's twice as bright. 
And I absolutely love it. One of the reasons why I love it is because of the bigger screen and things look a little bit bigger because, you know, my eyes are going, as they say, and it's just fantastic to have. And like you said, it keeps track of all the things I want to keep track of, whether my exercising timers when I need it. My I use uh, Overcast for my podcast player and I can control that for my watch as well as my phone. So it's nice to have that handy just to kind of pop into it when I want to like pause or stop my Overcast podcast playing. That's great. Now, yeah. At home, I'm assuming, uh, I'm going to guess that you have a different webcam? I do. I don't always use my laptop if I use the webcam. I don't remember what new webcam. I have a completely new setup since I'm three months into a new job. And I don't remember what webcam I use, to be honest. Logitech by chance? It is Logitech, yes. Is it the Yogi or Logi, if I remember correctly? It's a 4K can't remember, I can't remember the yeah, name of my own webcam. They give great pictures, but any Logitech product is going to give you a really good, clear picture. And, Pretty good, yeah. And you said you had a Yeti. Which one is it? Oh, it is, that's funny. I didn't know. It's the blue one. Doesn't that sound the Yeti savvy? blue? Is that, it's, no, I think that's that's the one I used to broadcast on. So oh, okay. they yeah. have Sumble Ice, which is like a little ball. Uh, that's yeah. only unidirectional. And then they have, I think the blue Yeti, which is what you have, which is something that I started off with that can be unidirectional, omnidirectional, bi-directional, and something yeah. else. And that's actually great for beginning podcasters. And just as an FYI, just to share with you, I also have them holding it up here. So if I disappear for a second, I have a sure oh, huh. V7 that I just picked okay. up. And you like it's, it? Oh, it's fantastic. You can tell the difference between going on the blue versus the shore. Now, really? one thing in particular is this is a unidirectional mic. So mm -hmm. I can't yeah. like have, unless I'm passing back and forth, like you and I can't be in the same room unless yeah. I'm passing back and forth. But at the ABA yeah. Tech Show, I had the opportunity to do a podcast live with Kenton Bryce of University of Oklahoma. And it, it was kind of fun in the sense, because I never did a podcast with the person I'm interviewing in the same room. So that was just, we were both having giggles because yeah. he does everything remotely too. And so I was able to turn on the bi-directional option on the mic and it worked perfectly. And actually the amazing thing is the huh. room was really loud because of some sort of air conditioning unit and it didn't capture that at all. Interesting. Huh. And that sounds just, great. Just as a quick share, do you have a pop filter on your mic? That's I a don't. little fuzzy cover. Do I need one? I yeah. would suggest getting one. I find one okay. on Amazon for like anywhere okay. between eight, eight to 12 bucks. And what it does is it helps with the popping, like the peas huh. and the breathing. Interesting. I did not know about that. Okay, great. I'm going to get that. And make sure that you get one that fits your mic. Because yeah. like you'll see like a lot of yeah. the ones for the handheld mics. And sometimes you might get confused. Right. So just make sure you get it. They'll probably much say in Amazon that it's for the Blue Yeti. It'll fit. I think you get like a choice of colors or you may end up getting like for a bag of four and $8 change. Because I haven't found yeah. a yellow one yet to match the blog. I'm still <laughs> working on um, Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. We cover. Do you use any special headphones? I don't when I'm doing video meetings like this. I do when I fly. And what do you uh, use? I fly with those headphones. Oh. I Bose headphones. Yeah, I fly so much that I just am concerned about my hearing, honestly, from all that. So I put my Bose headphones on. I don't want people to think I'm rude, but I have headphones on the whole flight. Are they and the I noise use canceling? AirPods. They are. Yeah, they're the noise canceling headphones. And I use them every time I fly. And only for that reason. If I'm listening to a podcast, right. I use AirPods. I use AirPods. Yeah. The regular AirPods, not the AirPods Pro. Not the, the Pro. The Pro. Okay. Yeah, I like the AirPods Pro for 
walking around listening to a podcast. I don't like to walk around my neighborhood with the big headphones on my head. Now, one thing I got to share with you, and respectfully, you were kind enough to occasionally pause the recording because you had a cough, which is okay. We're all human. And I'm hoping to show this to you. So I have this little mute me button. Can you see that? Yeah. And if I have it hooked up correctly, I can just, if I click on it, it goes from green to red and it mutes. This way I always know when I'm muted, presuming that all the technology is working correctly. Right, right, right. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the techsavvyleer.page podcast as much as I enjoy making them. Consider buying us a cup of coffee or two to help defray some of the production costs. Thanks and enjoy. Well, excellent. Let's get into the questions, if I may. Yeah. Question one, you made headway getting the Michigan Corp acclimated to the pandemic with virtual technology. What are the three biggest takeaways you think the courts have learned from technology during COVID? Yeah, it's such an important question because I've said this a bunch of times, but the courts learned more in 18 months to three years, depending on how long you think about the pandemic's length than they had in about a century. And some of the lessons maybe shouldn't have surprised us as much as they did. But you, of course, in a state like Michigan, which is geographically enormous, would remote proceedings made a lot of sense even before a pandemic, because why should somebody have to drive three hours for a 15-minute hearing? So in Michigan, we actually had, our judges all had Zoom licenses before we had a pandemic. They weren't using them, but they had them. So it was an option. But what we learned that was the single most important lesson is that self-represented parties, which is an enormous number of parties in state courts, were far less likely to default if they had a remote option for appearing in court. That to me is a it is a fact from which it is impossible for courts to turn away, that if you can better serve the people you serve who already are struggling because they can't afford lawyers, that obviously is something you're going to have to keep in your processes going forward. We learned, of course, that lawyers can do a whole lot more when they can make remote appearances. And we learned that certain witnesses or litigants were able to be more open and more forthright on remote platforms than in courthouses, specifically kids. So judges in child custody proceedings and termination of criminal rights proceedings reported regularly getting much better and more information out of kids in those proceedings when they were on remote platforms, which again, in retrospect, makes a lot of sense, right? Because courtrooms are scary and Imagine it, it, they're scary even for adults. Imagine how scary they would be for a kid who's already going through something probably somewhat traumatic if their family is in court. But what's less traumatic for kids is talking to their phones because that is something they do fairly regularly. So judges would report. So I was never able to learn much from her when she would come to the courtroom. But now when I can talk to her and she's in her room, she wants to show me her homework. She wants to show me around her room. And they were getting much better quality information from certain people in certain proceedings. So those are, there are many more lessons. You asked for three. Those are three, I think, important ones. Well, let's, I'm going to go back one step. I like to pull in the last two questions, if I may. So you say that lawyers can get much more done. And by the way, I wholeheartedly agree with you. So when I'd have to go into town and I live outside of D.C., I'd have to go in for hearings at the VA. And of course, you go to the hearings and the way the VA hearings work is it's first come, first go. So they set four or five hearings in the morning, four or five in the afternoon. You'd show up and you might get there, be the first one there. You might be the fifth one there. It's a luck of the draw. But also, as you may know, in DC, there is the commute. So there's like an hour and a half coming in for a 15 mile drive and then an hour and a half, two hours coming back. So I could leave early, still take an hour and a half, 
find out I'm fifth and then not leave to, until like one, two in the afternoon. And of course, the traffic around here starts yesterday. And so I have been saving so much time. I've gotten so much more sleep. And for the veteran that I have the hearings for, it's actually made it a lot easier on them because they don't have to worry about traveling here. They don't have to worry about getting to somewhere. They can just be at home, get a nice corner and a nice backdrop, and they're good to go. So, but my question to you is, does that save you as a judge more time? No, it actually ends up being a little bit more time for judges. I, although I think there are efficiencies that just take a while to figure out what those what the processes are to make sure you see them. But you know, there is some staff time with setting up remote hearings that you don't have when you have a big cattle call. So I think the answer is that it actually can be more time for judges and court staff. But part of that is because the, they haven't yet had the time to figure out process simplification and ways to make their end of the process a little more efficient. But there are some parts of it that 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 will be more time consuming. So when a judge or her staff has to set a bunch of remote hearings in a particular day, you have to set them for a certain time. You sometimes have to do tech checks. So you sometimes have to help people when they first show up in the meeting with different strategizing around what, whatever technical issues come up. You kind of need technology bailiffs instead of courtroom bailiffs. And that can end up taking a lot more time for judges and their staff. I, I think that is what it is. I mean, yeah, judges sometimes prefer a an in-person cattle call because it's a lot more convenient for them. They get to just show up on the bench when they want to and call the cases in the order they want to and finish when they want to. And it's the schedule revolves around them instead of around the litigants. And, but, you know, the thing is, the courts are for the people, not for the judges. So right. I don't have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. Well, well, I have to ask, I remember early on during COVID that when the virtual hearings, the chamber hearings were coming into light, that there was a lawyer who called in for her virtual hearing from her bed. And like yeah. there was a video hearing and I think she was still under the covers or something like that. Have you had something like that happen to you or to your colleagues? So I sat on, so I sat on the court of last resort on the Supreme Court. We, nobody showed up for court in bed there. They were quite professional. There were a lot, even well into the pandemic that I had to show them where their mic was and where their camera was. And, but still that was fine. I got used to that. But I know the trial judges definitely had many litigants and some lawyers show up in, in some kind of inappropriate way. And judges had to figure out how to manage that. They managed inappropriateness in their courthouses too. So it's right. not really a new set of skills. It's just applying those skills to a different medium. And your answer kind of bleeds into my question about your last answer, talking about that the litigants and the witnesses, how they a little bit more free to talk and a little bit more comfortable. Now, I remember an article, I think I blogged about it, where the judge was doing some sort of hearing regarding when the parties have to stay away from a, what's, what is it called? When the parties have to stay away from- A no, no contact order or I something? Think, a no contact order? Yeah. So when the, it was, I remember a case where it was a no contact order and the young lady was somewhere, presumably at home, but she could tell- the judge could tell something was wrong. And then, of course, the person who had the no contact order was also chiming in. And the judge realized, holy cow, they're in the same room. She was scared. She had her bailiff call the police and the guy was arrested. Have you come across? Yeah. Th those stories are out there in any given case, especially a case where a judge might have concerns about a witness's safe. A judge always has the authority to have that particular hearing happen in court. So right. there are ways to manage 
those potential mishaps. And I, I, they're the exception, not the rule, but they're exception that there's a strategy for handling. Excellent. Let's move on to our second question. Access to justice has been an issue for decades. What are three ways technology has helped the underserved? Moreover, what are three things attorneys can learn about serving this segment of the population, let alone their current clients? Yeah, technology is going to be a really important part of a breakthrough solution to what is really an access to justice crisis in this company. And the number of people who are navigating justice problems without lawyers is stunning. And obviously, technology gives us some opportunity to scale some solutions that we can't scale if the solutions are humans on a one-to-one service model, which is the model we learn in law school. But there have been, long before the pandemic, there have been technology platforms that have been able to scale some solutions to getting people the information they need, sometimes even help they need, not in the not usually in the form of a one-to-one service model, but in a toolkit or the ability to find out what kind of information is going to be re- relevant if you're trying to deal with a particular legal problem. And those solutions have been around for a while. I think that artificial intelligence generative AI is has the potential to actually really change that even more dramatically. The kinds of solutions that have been around thanks to technology are now going to be scalable. I think to agree, we don't fully understand it. Our human brains are not capable of understanding it. I think it's one of the most exciting parts of LLMs and and we'll see. Remind me the second part. You wanted to know what lawyers so should know what can about learn, What can attorneys to... learn about serving the, this segment of the population? So I think that if we think we can lawyer our way out of our civil justice crisis, and it is a civil justice crisis, we are unbelievably naive. We can't lawyer our way out of this problem. So what I think lawyers need to learn is a bunch of skills that law schools don't yet teach. Lawyers need to learn design thinking. They need to learn how to collaborate with technologists and with people in communities who understand the way legal problems are impacting their neighbors and figure out some one-to-many solutions because the one-to-one solutions, that that is the model that we learn in law school is is never going to get us there. What do you think about platforms like Hello Divorce, where it's a DIY to some degree, but of course, if you need more help, you can then get an attorney? Yeah. I mean, I think those platforms are a critical part of a set of solutions Mm -hmm. to the justice crisis. Michigan actually has, I think, one of the best self-help platforms in the nation. You can get a divorce and you just answer the questions and like Hello Divorce, it spits out the forms for you, we'll file them for you. But we do it for every other civil justice problem as well. So it's an all-service. MichiganLegalHub.org is a pretty amazing platform. I think they're great. But I think they're one tool in a what needs to be a really big toolbox to, to fully address the scope of the problem. So if there were three tools you could magically make appear, what would they be? I think the first one would be people other than lawyers empowered to help people with civil justice problems. When you have a healthcare issue, you don't necessarily see a surgeon. Sometimes a physician's assistant is good enough. Sometimes a nurse practitioner is good enough. I think I might get this slightly wrong, but I don't think so. I think 89% of healthcare workers are not MDs or DOs. They are some other, they have some other license to help people with health issues. 80% of legal services workers are JDs. 
why don't we have, my first tool I want is a legal nurse practitioner, and then I want a legal physician's assistant. Then I think I want some personal AI legal assistant that's going to be able to answer all of my questions and point me in the direction of solutions if it isn't sufficient to help me with a particular legal problem, but sort of a first step personally, personal, I want a lawyer in my pocket. I want everyone to have a lawyer in their pocket, thanks to GPT-4 or maybe co-counsel. I don't know who can build that, but somebody should build that, give everybody the information and the tools. I mean, we desperately need to democratize law. And I do think there's a possibility of doing that and doing it far sooner than I ever thought was possible. So I think that's pretty exciting. I think third tool I want is a better functioning democracy. There are a lot of problems that are showing up as legal problems that should have upstream policy solutions, the, the debt collection dockets that are crippling our courts, but also crippling people in our communities, I, they never should have gotten that far, right? We should, be sol- we should be solving those problems far right. upstream from when they become legal emergencies. So those might have been bigger tools than you had in mind, but that's my answer. No, 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 no. And I'm going to go back uh, two steps. One, regarding like the legal nurse or the doctor lawyer. It's funny, in the veterans benefits arena that I work in, there there are some nurses and doctors who got their JD or got certified to work VA cases, VA benefits cases before the VA, yeah. usually because they've been disgusted by what they've seen in the VA process and how people aren't properly diagnosed or they're clearly focused on the wrong issue, et cetera. So they are out there. As a matter of fact, I remember in law school, one of my fellow students was a nurse who wanted to go to law basically to help with elder care issues. But I may, have, I may not have been clear. I don't actually mean I need people who are nurses to go to law school. I mean, we should have people who don't have to go to law school who can help people with their civil justice problems. Right. People other than lawyers, like right. people other than doctors can help people with their healthcare problems. People other than lawyers should be able to help people with their civil justice problems. And yeah, actually, and going back to the VA realm, there you can become a certified representative by taking a certain test and studying for whatnot and not be a lawyer. But so I have to ask you about the elephant in the room. Okay. Is AI going to replace attorneys? Or the need for attorneys? No, it's not, AI is not going to replace attorneys, but attorneys who use AI are going to replace attorneys who don't use AI. And that's going to happen pretty quickly. I agree. Uh, there will be some boring lawyer work that mm-hmm. AIs will do and lawyers probably won't ever have to do anymore. But I think that just opens up the possibility for the human lawyer work to be to take up more of our days, which seems like a really good improvement. I, I agree. I mean, can you, do you remember the first time you were able to use Save As from a prior brief and just remove some of the analysis and you got your law, you got your general issues. All you had to throw in was maybe a little bit of an analysis and you were good to go. And trust me, I I had some people look at me like I was a bitch (laughs) doing voodoo. That being said, for our last question, what are the three most common mistakes attorneys and the pro se public are making with their use of technology in the courtroom? That's a good question and probably one that's better suited for a trial judge where technology is used in courtrooms a lot more regularly. In the Michigan Supreme Court, no one has ever used any technology, although I always found that a little interesting because there definitely would be occasions for it. You can imagine wanting to blow up a statute. If there's an issue of statutory construction, having an oral argument in the Supreme Court, why not have a big screen 
where you can actually, with a pointer or a highlighter, you can actually point to whatever your argument is. It's never happened. We do have a blind justice on the Michigan Supreme Court, or we, I don't say there anymore. Michigan Supreme Court does have a blind justice sitting there, so that causes some problems with any exhibits. But I don't know of any of my colleagues in Supreme Courts in other states that where anybody uses any technology. And it, again, especially in statutory construction issues, I don't know why you wouldn't want to. It feels like you might. But I don't know in the trial courts, I bet there's just an enormous variance. I bet there's some lawyers using it really well and others using it really poorly. And I just don't have access to that quite because I'm not, I never sat in the trial courts. But I'm surprised that when attorneys are up there arguing before you that perhaps they don't have like a tablet or an iPad where they're like, okay, on record page 3,205, it actually says this, not that. Yeah. Honestly, I don't even, I guess sometimes I'll see an attorney with a computer or an iPad in the courtroom, but I've never Never seen one to go to their iPad to find something in the record that somebody's asked about. Never seen that in 10 years sitting on the bench. Bridget, again, I want to thank you for joining us. Where can people find you? It's probably easiest to find me at the American Arbitration Association, McCormickB at ADR.org. Excellent. I'll be sure to have that in the show notes and, of course, some of the stuff that you referenced today. And again, I want to thank you. Have a great day. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for the My conversation. Pleasure. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at michaeldj at the TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy luring.